Hello and welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. I'm delighted to welcome this time journalist Sarah Graham. She's an award-winning freelance health journalist and founder of the Hysterical Women blog. She specialises in health, gender and feminism and has written extensively on these subjects for the i-newspaper, Refinery29, The Telegraph, The Guardian, Grazia, The BMJ and many others. Her book, Rebel Bodies, A Guide to the Gender Health Cap Revolution, was published on 5th of January this year. So, uh, yeah, just last week. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so Rebel Bodies grew out of and weaves in stories from the blog, Hysterical Women, which you started in 2018. Can you talk a little bit about why you launched the blog and at what point did you then decide that you wanted to kind of generate the, the book as, as sort of using the stories from, from yeah, the Yeah, absolutely. So I was writing a lot about women's health as a freelance journalist and I think I had started kind of noticed that there were similar patterns similar themes coming up in all sorts of different things that I was writing about you know whether it was endometriosis whether it was the menopause whether it was chronic illnesses and Mm. I suppose as a freelancer because I was writing for different places I felt like that work was was quite spread out you know there was a bit over here in this publication there was a bit over there in that publication and I sort of wanted a place to to bring it all together really and so that was how the blog was was born the idea was just to create a space where women could share their own stories kind of a, a point proving exercise really that actually you know you're not alone this isn't just you and and it's not a one-off there you know there's a, this exactly. kind of huge yeah to, to sort of bring all of those stories together and and say look this is a problem this is a big thing and you know I think as a journalist you know I've got other friends who are journalists and we often kind of joke that every journalist has a book in them and it's it you know it's always kind of in the back of your mind with any big project is is mm-hmm. this sort of leading towards a book and I think the point for me where I sort of felt like yeah actually there is something here where I want to dig deeper and I I want to look at this in more depth was actually through getting involved with the different communities who who I speak to and and talk about in the book speaking to women's health activists you know menopause activists campaigners menstrual health activists and campaigners all sorts of different people who were using their experiences to push for better and and that was what really inspired me and because I think a lot has been written in the last few years or certainly has has started to be written in the last few years about the problem itself we kind of broadly know that the gender health gap is a thing and what I wanted to do with the book was to take that one step further and go okay but this is what women are doing about it there is a revolution kind of bubbling away under the surface And it's starting to pick up momentum. And so I wanted to, you know, celebrate those communities that I felt so inspired by. You also found out whilst you were writing the book that you were pregnant with your son, who's just turned one the same week (laughs) of your your book launch. That was beautifully timed. Very intense week. (laughs) How did your own experience of pregnancy, birth and that sort of postpartum period influence the chapter Baby Blues, which is one of the chapters in in the book and and vice versa? Yeah, I mean, on a practical level, it was just really hard work, you know, because that was that was the chapter that I was working on at the time uh, that I found out I was pregnant, which, you know, obviously was very apt. But I just felt, I mean, literally, 
sick and tired all day every day just absolutely exhausted mm. so kind of actually just the the practical side of getting words on a page was was quite tough I think you know the other kind of side of it was it did make me feel quite anxious about what I was going to experience you know I think with the type of work I do anyway I was already very sort of conscious acutely aware of the things that can go wrong of the you know horrible experiences that some some women some parents do have so I think it did make me quite determined to sort of fight my case it made me go into pregnancy very much with my eyes wide open very clear ideas about what I did and didn't want very clear ideas about how I wanted to prepare for pregnancy you know and I think in a lot of ways that was really positive because you know one of the things I hear a lot is women saying I had no idea that this could happen that this was a thing and so women often are taken completely by surprise by the impact that pregnancy has on their bodies the impact that labor has on their bodies the the sort of postnatal recovery stuff so I think yeah. in in that sense it it was a it was a real double-edged sword I was very aware of the negatives but also it helped me to feel really super prepared and actually I was really lucky you know I went into my first appointment with my community midwife really sort of prepared to to fight my case and to stick up for myself and she was brilliant she was absolutely fantastic she was very much this is your body your baby your birth and and we'll do whatever we can to make it you know supportive and to support you in your choices and to to do what is right for you which was exactly what I needed it's what every single person giving birth should have but obviously I know from my work that it isn't always uh, how it happens um, so I was very lucky to have that continuity of care and that really supportive care. And actually, my birth experience was very, very positive. My postnatal experience was really positive. I felt really well supported. But yeah, certainly going into it, I had a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety because, you know, I, I was literally writing a catalogue of birth horror stories at the same time as growing up. Yeah, not, not necessarily recommended for somebody. And was your, your first? Yeah, yeah my uh, first. Uh, I guess for most of us, uh, ignorance is bliss, and we <laughs> we only find out later. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you had a very very positive Thank experience. You. you share, as you've said, a, a wide range of stories in the book in Red Bull Bodies. Many of them are shocking; they're harrowing. Some of them are really inspiring in terms of people who've used their own experiences to then campaign for change and for better treatment. Are there any stories in particular that stand out for you? The ones that when you were writing the book, it's like, I'm, I absolutely have to include this one or these two. Or yeah, three. absolutely. I mean, the one that for me, I it, it just felt so important and so heart wrenching, so kind of harrowing. And that really just sticks out in my mind was uh, the interview that I did with Claire Norton who uh, you, you may well remember from reading the book yourself, she had three daughters. The second of those daughters died at eight days old. She had said to the midwife that something was wrong and she was ignored, basically. She, she, her concerns were not listened to. 
um, and her daughter was born breech, not breathing, and, and subsequently died. And then her third daughter, Merrin Crofts, developed very severe ME as a teenager. Mm-hmm. She was completely debilitated by it. And and doctors didn't believe Merrin, didn't believe Claire. There was a point where Claire was accused of having fabricated the whole thing. And Merrin very sadly died at the age of 21. She was one of the first people to have ME recorded as the cause of death on her death certificate. And Claire said this one line that has has always really stuck with me, death means we believe you now. She compared it to the, the witch trials. Well, you use that as the, as the subject, as, as the chapter yeah. heading for that chapter. And it is, it is as we said, incredibly harrowing. Every parent's worst nightmare, not once, but but twice. And knowing the extent to which, you know, that sort of maternal instinct often gets ridden roughshod over. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Claire's story definitely is the one that I... I must have read this book now a dozen times kind of in the in the editing process and every single time I read that those conversations I had with I had with Claire it makes me cry you know it because it is such mm. a heart-wrenching story and then I think the others you know I I won't kind of go into so many of the specifics but the other the other stories that felt really important for me to include were the intersectional ones so you know to to have women of color and their stories and voices and experiences be included, to have trans and non-binary people's stories included, for disabled women's stories to be included. Because I think often, you know, a lot of what has been written so far about the gender health gap, you know, there the might be sort of a nod to those issues or, or it's sort of a footnote that, oh, yes, and by the way, you know, people with, with multiple disadvantages are affected differently. But I wanted that to be a really kind of, key central thread to the book you know because so often it is only the very privileged white middle class women whose stories get heard you know like mine and 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 yours you know we we're the ones that have that have the voices that have the platforms and it was very important to me that the book was properly intersectional properly inclusive that it wasn't just a kind of afterthought but that those stories run all the way through so they're in every chapter and it's something that is central to the book um and and so that felt really important to me that those voices were included very much i love that but as you say you know it runs all the way through you know each chapter of the book and clearly yeah it's it's very kind of sensitive and, and thoughtful way of weaving in those, those experiences and I have learned a tremendous amount from reading the book so I'm really thank you grateful. that's really lovely to hear as well as the the stories being quite shocking some of the stats that you talk about I'm a stats nerd are, are all equally shocking so if we pull out endometriosis as just one example uh you say that it's estimated to cost the UK economy and I have to kind of read this twice because it seems like such a crazy amount 8.2 billion a year have I got that right uh that sounds right yeah I don't have it in front of me but it yeah. is it is a staggering amount and you know that that covers treatment costs but it also covers the damage to the economy in terms of people not being able to work people needing time off that kind of thing and yeah I think you know one of the really infuriating things about this whole issue for me is just the, the false economy of it all you know and it is something that we have very much seen 
the Tory government without wanting to get too political, but the Tory government do to the NHS over the last decade. So many examples of where you're making short term savings, but actually you are storing up such massive problems for yourself in the future by not investing. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things that I'm really clear about in the book is that we need to invest. We need money to fix this problem. You can't, it, you know, it can't be all talk. We need the government to put their money where their mouth is. You know, and we've seen, we saw during COVID and we're seeing at the moment with the NHS crisis that has hit very hard this winter, that if you don't invest up front, you are just storing up so many so many problems for the future you know we really need to invest in workforce to invest in resources to invest in research so that so that we're not spending all this unnecessary money on people being really sick further down the line not to mention the misery for those people themselves who might take 10 years to to get a diagnosis and be living in you know tremendous pain for for a lot of that time and let's also look at the stats another stat coming up more stats on heart attacks so women are up to three times more likely than men to die from a heart attack 50 percent more likely than men to receive an incorrect initial diagnosis when they're having a heart attack and seven times more likely than men to be misdiagnosed and discharged in the middle of a heart attack which is terrifying Um, Especially we know that our risks for cardiovascular disease increase sort of post-menopause when we're kind of losing that protection from oestrogen. Actually, it's one of the things that I liked, uh, again, about the book, you you know, you talk at the end of each chapter, you've got sort of a little toolkit for kind of how to approach a sort of advocating for, for yourself or for somebody perhaps in your family. Other than being kind of educated and, and aware ourselves, are there things do you think that that we can do from that point of view if that's something that that's affecting us although I don't know whether we would have the presence of mind if we were in the middle of a heart attack to be thinking about <laughs> these things but I'm a planner I like, I like to think yeah, ahead. Absolutely. you know it's a really tricky one and you know one of the things that I kind of talk about in the book with with heart attacks is you know on the one hand you, there's this kind of almost sort of perceived wisdom that that's been around in the last few years that women suffer different symptoms from men and that that's why they're they're underdiagnosed that's why they're more likely to be misdiagnosed and actually the, the the latest research shows that actually that isn't true that's a bit of a myth you know women are just as likely to experience those kind of classic heart attack symptoms, the chest pains, the the pain down the arm, Mm -hmm. um, all the sort of things that you think of. And that actually, you know, possibly by having this mindset that women's symptoms are different, maybe that has contributed sort of what we do know is that symptoms vary from person to person, um, not necessarily along kind of sex or gender lines. So I think it's important, you know, that we're aware of the whole kind of breadth of possible symptoms, you know, that it might be different for one person compared to somebody else. I think the other thing that that really stands out when you talk about heart attacks is just the sort of cultural perception of who has heart attacks. You know, if you think mm-hmm. about heart attacks, you know, the, the British Heart Foundation talk about the kind of Hollywood heart attack. You know, you can see it, can't you, in your mind? like George Clooney or Robert De Niro is clutching their chest they fall to the floor some you know everybody comes rushing and and so that is very much what we have in our mind 
as it's middle-aged men. That's who has heart attack. And that's not true. We know this. We know cardiovascular disease kills more women than breast cancer. But actually, I think for the majority of people on the street, they would think that breast cancer was 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 the biggest thing, you know, as far as yeah. as far as women are concerned. And so we need to be talking about this, you know, and, and I think podcasts like yours talking about the you know the the risks that come with the menopause and the fact that women are affected by cardiovascular disease that women do have heart attacks is important you know because it's not just about doctors stopping and thinking oh could this actually be a heart attack it's also women themselves one of the big problems is that women tend to present later with heart attack symptoms Mm -hmm. We don't like to make a fuss either, do we? We'll just sit quietly while they deal with everything else. We have those same cultural stereotypes that make us think, oh, it's not a heart attack. You know, I'm just having a bit of a panic Mm -hmm. attack or whatever. I think there is very much an issue with the medical side of things, with doctors not going, could this be a heart attack? But also, you know, women ourselves are not aware that it that it could be an issue. Um, So I think, you know, really raising awareness and being aware of those things is is a big part of it and having those conversations you know with your partner I think often like you say you're not necessarily in the middle of a heart attack going to have the presence of mind to say I think this is a heart attack can you please you know do the relevant tests or whatever can you take this seriously but if you've had that conversation with your loved ones your partner whoever you live with then they might you know be the one to think to say could this be a heart attack should this be something we're looking into I'm going to go off on an interesting tangent there because you talk in the book about, and this is kind of slightly irritates me, but also fascinates me, the presence of a male body relative in an appointment with a medical professional, even if they don't say anything, changes the attitude of that kind of doctor, that medical professional. Yeah, I mean, I would I would slightly caveat what you just said. It can change the attitude. And certainly it's something, like you, I feel really uncomfortable saying it sometimes. It's something where I feel like this really, it shouldn't be advice that we have to give to women. But from people that I spoke to, um, and one woman in particular said, <laughs> told me that she had experimented with this. You know, she... She's someone who lives with a chronic illness, so she has a lot of doctor's appointments, and she'd experimented with going to appointments on her own versus going to appointments with her partner. And she said nine times out of ten, her partner sat there, he looked at his shoes, didn't say a single word, but the way that she was spoken to was different. And the other thing I would say, you know, is it doesn't necessarily have to be a man. I think often just having somebody else there can make a difference in and of itself you know because whether they're there to advocate for you because you don't feel able to advocate for yourself but actually even if they're just there as a witness as somebody to back you up and say actually no the way that you were spoken to was not on or just somebody you know so that your doctor knows that you're you're there to be taken seriously and you've brought somebody and there is somebody else almost kind of holding them to account for for the way they treat you I think that can be really useful. It's not about kind of undermining your doctor or making them feel intimidated, yeah. but it's just saying, I'm here, I've got my moral support, my witness, my advocate, whoever they are, listen to me, take me seriously. 
And I think definitely if you are perimenopausal and suffering from from the kind of the brain fog, having somebody there to either take notes for you or prompt you if you've you lost count of the times where I come out of a meeting or you know, not necessarily a kind of an appointment, but you just think, oh God, enough meant to say that or I meant to, you know, ask about that. So I think, yeah, as you say, having somebody there and actually, even if that's not possible to, you know, make notes beforehand, write stuff down so that you know exactly what you want to say. And you can always kind of check it off as you go through the appointment. That can be really useful. And having symptoms that you've tracked over weeks or months so you can say, this is how long it's been going on. This is these are the patterns. These are the things I've noticed. It's helpful for your doctor as much as it is for you, because it gives them a clearer picture of what's going on. I'm terrible for going into things and going, well. I think it happened about three months ago and we all are we all we all do it you know but I think you have such a short appointment time and it is a real struggle for GPs as well you know I'm very much like I don't want to slag off GPs they have a really tough job and and a really tough time of it and anything you can do to make their job easier is going to benefit you in the long run. Let's move on to what you call the suicide gender paradox. And so, yeah, for anyone who, for whom suicide is a tricky topic, feel free to, to skip ahead on this one or kind of come back if you're not feeling up to listening to it at the moment. So it was news to me that women actually attempt suicide at higher rates, but men are more likely to succeed, to, to, to kind of die as a, as a result. So... Again, the suicide rate for women peaks around the sort of demographic of perimenopause, menopause. Often when we try to point this out, the arguments shut down because obviously the, the rates are far higher in men than they are in women. But it's, that seems to me to be a really important consideration that, yeah, I, I don't know the extent to which when we you know, talk about suicide rates that, that we kind of we take that also into consideration the sort of you know the attempts versus yeah yeah absolutely and this you know this is one of the things where as I say in the book it's it's not trying to sort of downplay the seriousness of the male suicide crisis you know it is absolutely an issue that men are struggling and are dying by suicide and are not feeling able to ask for help for whatever reason but I think we also need to look at the fact that there's still a lot of sexism around women's mental health, you know, and I think what we see a lot with suicide attempts, with things like self-harm, is it's really sort of dismissive mm. language around cries for help or attention seeking. And actually, when you think about the the implications of that language, like, why the hell, if someone is feeling that bad that they're hurting themselves, why the hell shouldn't you be paying attention? There's, there's almost this kind of implication that, that if somebody is just attention-seeking, that, that they should be ignored and, and shut up and, and that actually it's not that serious because they haven't, you know, they haven't gone far enough to actually kill themselves. And that, I think, is such a damaging... You know, it's, it's this whole false economy thing again, isn't it? It's we only take it seriously once it's too late you know, and, and when somebody does actually die by suicide, we have all this hand-wringing and, oh, you know, I, I hope my friends can always reach out and ask for help. And But actually, when people do reach out and ask for help, so often the help is not there. 
And that's what we really need to tackle, you know. We need to make sure that help is available at the earliest possible opportunity so that, you know, we're intervening before it gets to the stage where people feel like there is no other option. That's true across the board with mental health, absolutely. And I think, you know, like you say, there is a real problem around perimenopause where, you know, women's mental health is being hit really hard. And it's so easy to dismiss it because, you know, your kids are leaving home or there's all this other stuff going on in your life. You know, you've got a more responsibility at work. Your dynamic with your relationship might have changed. There's, there's all this other stuff that it's easy to kind of write it off as just doing this mm-hmm. or... You know, you hear all these stories about women being told you're just stressed, reduce your hours at work, you know, go for a massage. And actually, we need to be tackling the the root causes. And we need doctors to be thinking, could this be hormonal? You know, if a woman of a certain age is coming in and their mental health has just hit rock bottom seemingly out of nowhere, that should be a red flag that something is going on. Absolutely. And that whole sort of prescribing of antidepressants as a sort of first line treatment rather than hormone therapy where it would be potentially more appropriate is a yeah. thing that I know, you know, the, the NHS is, is trying to tackle, but definitely it's something that we, we kind of hear repeatedly that women go in for an appointment and the first thing that they're offered is, is antidepressants. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think some of that comes from from ignorance, from doctors not joining the gaps. Uh, not joining Mm -hmm. the dots rather you know and some of it comes from doctors just really feeling like like their hands are tied when it comes to mental health you know that that waiting lists for specialist services are so long that you know there's no point referring you for talking therapies because that's going to take two years or or whatever before you get to speak to somebody looking faster again isn't it so if you, if you also haven't joined the dots and thought this could be menopause and maybe HRT would be a useful option, then, yeah, you, you know, you can see why so many women come out of those appointments with a prescription for antidepressants because it it's just, it, it's an easy option. I pulled out this um, this quote from page 34 and you're talking in this particular instance about PMDD, uh, which I'll... I'm going to get the acronym wrong. Is it? It's um. You tell me because otherwise I'll get it wrong. Brain fog. It's uh, it's premenstrual <laughs> dysphoric disorder. So it's a severe form of PMS. So the quote says, from a feminist perspective, how do we acknowledge the very real impact of PMDD on sufferers' mental health without fueling the idea that women's menstrual cycles make us irrational, overly emotional, and less competent, trustworthy, or reliable? And again, I think this equally applies to the kind of the situation of perimenopause menopause where especially thinking about it in the in a workplace context for example you know actually disclosing what might be going on can make us feel very very vulnerable because we'll be perceived as less than not taken seriously all of that stuff so yeah I don't know I would be really interesting to to kind of unpack some of that and kind of hear about your viewpoint yeah absolutely and like you say I think it I think it is a particular problem when it when it comes to workplaces because we as feminists as working women have fought for decades you know to be seen as equal to men to sort of dispel these myths and ideas that we're that we're too irrational, we're too emotional, you, you know, that, that we're weaker or less capable because of our hormones. You know, that is such a kind of strong 
cultural message, you know, and, and you hear still stories about women being dismissed in, in board meetings as, oh, well, you must be on your period because you're disagreeing with me or, or, or whatever. You know, women being dismissed as hormonal with the implication being that they're not thinking straight. So I think it is, it's a really tricky one. And I think, you know, workplaces are certainly in recent years having these conversations a lot more about menopause, about menstrual issues, about the impact it has on women at work. And I think it's it's a really tricky one to know what the solutions are. You know, if you have a kind of blanket menstrual leave policy, menopause leave policy, things like that, I think actually that can in some cases be detrimental because like you say, it's, it's giving the impression that women are just going to take a week off work every month, you know, because they've got their period and they want to sit at home and eat chocolate and watch Sex in the City or whatever. That's a really dated example. I don't know why Sex and the City came to mind. <laughs> Real housewives of somewhere. So I think I think it is really tricky. You know, I think it's a tough one for HR managers to to grapple with, and I think there the really has to be a much more kind of flexible, human centered approach. You know, that recognises that all employees, men, women, everything in between have different needs you know people might have families that mean they have different needs people might have chronic illnesses people you know might have really severe menopause symptoms there are all sorts of things going on and taking a more flexible approach to people as individuals I guess is is probably the way that I sort of look at it rather than it being a sort of because what we don't want is to get back into that kind of mindset of us versus blanket assumption. Yeah, that... ex- exactly. You know, it it just is about listening to what people need, listening to what people are struggling with, and what is helpful for them. Making allowances for you know, it, one of the things that's really difficult if you're working is just getting time off to go to a doctor's appointment to get the HRT that you might need, or or whatever, what whatever kind of treatment options might help you to function better at work so I think all those kinds of things just having a more flexible open approach to people as individuals is so important obviously we're recording this uh you've kind of already alluded to this sort of earlier on but a very difficult time for the NHS in the UK um I know we've got listeners from outside the UK as well but for anybody who isn't aware you know there's a lot of strike action going on um, the NHS is is incredibly underfunded, uh, struggling. You know, we've got record wait times for appointments. We've got ambulances waiting outside hospitals for, for hours upon end. I have doctors and nurses in my immediate family. So, I you know, I'm very alive to kind of what is happening. I'm very gratified that, you know, you talk in the book about, you know, that you're not trying to sort of ascribe blame and that you know you do talk about some of the the issues that are sort of systemic issues that doctors are having to deal with you talk as, as well about the uh later latter part of the book um, about the women's health strategy for england which was published in 2022 i'm going to make a big assumption there but have, have you read it all do you have any particular thoughts yes it's a very hefty document i have been through it and it do I have thoughts? I mean, yes, I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> Publishable or uh, audible? I think uh, at a, at a sort of fundamental level, I think the fact that it has been published, the fact that this conversation is happening at a government and policy level, 
is really positive and is a testament to the hard work of campaigners and advocates like the ones in the book. I think they really are the people who have laid the groundwork for getting this conversation on the agenda. And so I think the fact that the government has been forced to listen, has been forced to run a public consultation on this to address the issues is hugely significant and that we you know we can't underestimate how significant the publication of the women's health strategy is there are some really good things in it dame leslie regan has been appointed as the women's health ambassador i think she is fantastic i think you know she will be really a formidable person to have in our corner kind of holding the government to account and there are lots of promising mm-hmm. things in the women's health strategy it's very comprehensive in the areas that it covers uh, which is great to see i think the concerns that i and other people have raised are around a kind of lack of specific details so a lot of it feels quite vague it feels like the actual sort of finer points have not yet been nailed down and and that will be important no no kind of deadlines and no specifics absolutely yeah and then the other thing of course as as we again have already talked about is there is no really specific dedicated funding allocated you know that there are there are kind of certain small pots for specific projects but there are big questions about where all of the money is going to come from to fund the things that are talked about in the strategy And I think at an even bigger, more fundamental level, there is no real reference to a workforce plan, you know, and and that is the crisis that the NHS currently finds itself in. We do not have enough doctors and nurses for the NHS to function properly. You know, we need people to put this strategy into practice. And if there's nobody left to run the GP practices, you know, it could be the best strategy in the world, but there'd be no one to put it into practice. And that, I think, is the really key thing for me, is that we need the funding, we need the resources, we need the government to look seriously at workplace, at staff retention, at recruitment, because otherwise it's all meaningless, you know? It it will not achieve what it is setting out to achieve, and that's what we really need to see happening over the coming months and years. Yeah, I mean... It's- taken a long time for the NHS to get to this critical point that it's at now it's going to take a long time it's going to be a long road back hopefully that seems like a good a place as any to to wind things up Sarah thank you so much Rebel Bodies is out I really really couldn't recommend it to you more highly I think it's a really really important work congratulations on your your book baby your real baby and uh yeah look forward to uh, to reading more of your work I'll make sure that we link to the book to your social media accounts and to the hysterical women blog as well in the show notes but yeah thank you so much for your thank time thank you You've been listening to the Middling Along podcast. Do remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode is live. And why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.